What is the technology we've got that can solve homelessness? What is the technology that can make you know, high quality healthcare accessible to all? I believe that's the world we should be creating. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Brett King, world-renowned futurist and speaker, international best-selling author, and media personality who covers the future of business, technology, and society. Brett hosts the world's number one ranked radio show on fintech, Breaking Banks, with 7 million listeners, and is the founder and executive chairman of Movin, a successful mobile startup which has raised over 47 million US dollars. His books have achieved bestseller status in 20 countries, with his latest book on how to shape the post-coronavirus world, The Rise of Techno-Socialism, just out. You can find more on his work at brettking.com, on Twitter at brettking, and also check out his book at riseoftechnosocialism.com. In this episode, Brett shares insights on understanding fintech, writing for sensemaking, thought leadership streams of consciousness, changing how people think, and much more. Keep listening to learn from Brett's fabulous insights. Awesome to have you on the show, Brett. Anytime we get together and talk, it's always interesting. So, Absolutely. So you keep across, amongst many other things, the edge of fintech, and far more, actually, which we'll probably get to. And that's a pretty fast-moving field. So how do you keep across change and make sense of it and understand what's going on in this so rapidly changing space? Well, the, the sheer volume of what's happening in fintech now means that, you know, I, I can't keep across everything, but I can, can keep across stuff thematically that has emerged over the last, you know, 13 years or so since fintech was a thing. Um, but I've been running a podcast for eight years and that's in the fintech space. So we're always interviewing startups and players in that space so that's a good way to keep uh, you know on top of the news actually interviewing people um, and then um, you know I have a close uh, group of friends who you know, back in 2008 2009 you know 2010 sort of time frame were the early content creators and curators of, of fintech related content now you know they have big followings and so you know keeping uh, track of what those guys are talking about um you know also helps from a, a macro perspective where i i sort of fail is on the email side i've now got to the point where email is almost totally useless for me because the volume of email i'm getting is unmanageable 
And so um, I do tend to rely on people messaging me through LinkedIn or Messenger or uh, WhatsApp or or text or something like that or Twitter direct message rather than emailing me just because the the volume of content I get through there is now too much to, to manage, you know, um, at 1,200, 1,300 emails a day at peak, you know, which um, you just can't go through that many emails every day. So there's some stuff that I, I do better um, than others. But the Twitter feed, um, you know, curated Twitter feed and the lists I've got within Twitter help me sort of hone in on the core news, um, you know, that, that's affecting the industry. So you know, starting off with talking about the relationships, and so relationships of the people you know from way back and you can not just follow them on Twitter, but have conversations with them and reaching out to people who want to be interviewed on your show and uh, building the relationships there. So I, I think part of this is around the quality of the relationships as well as who it is you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's true. Um, having people that trust you to deal with their message properly when you're in the public space, like I am, as you know, someone that's you know at least you know uh, be, been sort of a foundational podcast on the on the fintech side. You know, the podcast is called Breaking Banks. It came out um, not long after the Breaking Bad TV series, so you know you can see why we named it the way we did. Um, but being um, sort of a vehicle for these people to to, um, you know, talk about their startups, express their opinions, and so forth. Early in the space, that in the, in the space gave me some credibility um, there as as sort of a team player. Um, but I've also been um, I've been also very serious about paying it forward. Uh, you know, I've been successful in the space because of. Um, a lot of people who've got behind my message and amplified it and so forth. And I'm also very aware uh, of my responsibility to do the same for them. And so, you know, I try and, I try and make sure that um, I'm a good social uh, media partner for, for these people as well and, um, you know, can help them get their message across when, when, when required and needed. And so then when I go and ask them to help me out uh, on occasion or ask them for some input, um, you know, they're, they're quite open to it. So I think it is very much that, um, you know, when you've got a network like that, you have to, um, you know, keep that, keep that net network nourished and uh, and recognize the the value of the key um, key key stakeholders. Yeah, so it's not just about trust, as in trust they trust you that you're going to do the right thing with whatever they share with you, which can include, of course, privileged information potentially or right. other things, but also that uh, you know you're actively doing things in their interest, and you know which could be sharing information or other things which will uh, yeah and just even just people being able to ask me for help you know um like one of the areas and and i'm sure you probably get this as well is one of the areas i get a lot um uh, you know get asked a lot is how i you know how they can get on the speaking circuit and you know how to 
build a, a speaking business because a lot of them see the sort of stuff that we do and and they're they're like i would love to get paid to speak and so you know um helping people understand how the speaking business works and what they need is a platform to be able to successfully generate leads for speaking opportunities and all of that um that's always going to take a bit of time because it is uh, you know if unless you're in the industry and in the space you don't really understand the economics of how that works um, you know, that's, that's one area. Also, you know, often getting asked to connect people with other people in fintech, you know, um, that's, a, that's another common one. Um, but the other thing is when you, when you start building profile, um, and so you, you know, you have the best-selling books, you have the radio show, you'll also get a lot of people that will, um, you know, they connect with you on LinkedIn or they connect with you on Facebook and next thing they know, they, they, you know, they contacted me saying, Hey, I want some help with my business. And often, um, you know, it'll be something like, well, you know, all the banks, so maybe you could help introduce my company to all these banks. And I was like, dude, I, you know, I run six companies of my own. Um, and you know, so being a sales force of one for your product is, is not really super appealing to me, but having to say that in a nice way, so they don't get offended is, is, is sometimes tough. I know, um, you know, one of the challenges is as you get more time poor, um, and there's more demands on your time, you know, um, giving your time for other people and, and giving them assistance in that way, you, you have to be a little bit more selective. But I do try at, at least take a 15-minute call or something like that where I can and help, you know, help these people where I can or where I've learned those those lessons. I think that's important to to pay it forward in that way. Yeah, so it's not, not just information, but... Uh value in many ways that flows in the, the networks of relationships. And I guess it just becomes that much more challenging when you're uh, prominent and I suppose, you know, in a way a conduit for, for many for that, for their information being able to, to get out. So you talked talk before about the themes. And so, so fintech's incredibly complex. I mean, it's multi-layered from payments through to crypto through to, uh, you know, transaction processing <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't think anybody really understands the whole. It's impossible. So how is it that you, and, and it is so rapidly changing still, the whole, you know, DeFi and... Sure. Uh, so how, how do you make sense of that? So it's not just about information, of course. It's about actually building an understanding of what is changing and from what has been this old... Uh, establishment of the way money works to the way, the way money is going to work. So how is it, What are, you mentioned that themes, is, is that some of the ways in which you pull out and be able to build this understanding? Yeah, look, um, you know, part of it is just taking that, uh, uh, you know, as as futurists or forecasters, taking that 30,000 foot view and seeing, you know, where is it that this is going to, you know, what, where's, where's it likely to evolve to? So when you start looking at things like crypto or DeFi, NFTs, you know, this is an effort to digitize the world, to digitize money, digitize transactions, digitize assets, because we've created this digital framework of the internet and, and e-commerce and, and so forth on, on top of that. So it's the natural evolution of money, if you like. You know, money, when it was created back in the sort of, um, you know, at least 
this paper money back in the 16th century. Um, you know, the first uh, central bank in Sweden actually was was the first issuer of you know paper notes. Um, the Chinese had leather at some point as well in the past. But um, the point is, these national fiat currencies were built for value exchange within their geography. But today, the world is opening up into this sort of global commerce platform where you know commerce can happen in real time. And so, you'd expect money has to evolve to meet the needs of of the 21st century. That's one part of it. The other part of it is is purely the fact that um, banking. Um, historically has not been accessible to most people on the planet. Up until the year, you know, um, is about 2011, I think, um, you still had a a 45% of the world that were unbanked, um, that had never had a bank account. In the United States, 20% of households are still unbanked. Um, And part of that is because of the rules that banks have created about who can access their services. You must have a driver's license or a passport. You you know, you you have these hoops that you have to jump through from an identity perspective or um, imagine you're a homeless person, you don't have an address. You know, you don't have a, a telephone number. How are you going to get a bank account when you can't fill out those items on the application form, right? So um, as banking has become more um, entrenched in regulation around anti-money laundering and the Patriot Act and, you know, all of these sorts of things, we ended up inadvertently excluding more and more people from the financial system when it should be the opposite. And then at the same time, you've got the smartphone that's come in and the smartphone has opened up access to mobile wallets, you know, the equivalent of a bank account in parts of the world. Um, you know, for example, Kenya went from 25% of the adult population having a basic bank account to basically 98% of the population having a mobile money account through M-Pesa. So you have these sort of competing mechanisms, this heavily regulated industry that is very worried about um, things like anti-money laundering and, 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 and customer identification or know your customer rules and so forth, making it harder and harder to do banking, and then technology coming in and making it more accessible. So those two worlds have sort of collided, and you've seen different regulatory approaches to that. So you talk about the different themes. Now we've got reg tech and sub tech, supervisory tech, and you know we've got um, even just within regulation, we've got these different flavors of fintech within that space you've got the crypto environment so you've got you know uh, cryptocurrencies tokens icos um you know nfts DeFi, all of that and then you've got sort of the basic banking stuff you know so whether that is mobile deposit taking or mobile money um you know mobile wallets you've now got um you know like companies like wise who um are able to they've sort of really cornered the market on international transfers that are faster and cheaper than what the banks can do um you've got you know buy now pay later schemes which are replace placing credit cards providing credit access contextually in a purchase experience. You've got so many of these different things happening at once, but really it's a, you know, the the, the really interesting thing about banking is that um, during the dot-com, 
they missed the whole e-commerce message. You know, they avoided that. They didn't want, you know, they, they had all these branches and agents and advisors and they didn't really want to disrupt that model. So when the internet came along, they resisted digitization. But the smartphone means that we've accelerated all of these new models in this space. So the rate of change is actually faster than, um, you know, what we anticipated. And then there's the, the big venture capital raises. You know, um, Q1 of 2021 was the biggest quarter we've ever had for fintech investments. So it shows no sign of slowing. It's, it's a really interesting space. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com course to find out more. Now back to the show. So, so pulling, pulling up to the, to the meta level of the, or the metacognition. So taking out the content of, you know, finance and fintech and banking. So what are the thinking processes that you apply to making sense of this? And you talked about some of that, uh, sure. that I suppose these forces, countervailing forces of regulation and technology, and I suppose new spaces emerging and so on. So, so what are, what are the your thinking structures yeah. as a futurist? You know, in this case, which could be applied to any domain, not just finance. Sure. Um, you know, obviously, one of the areas is application of technology. So, where's technology taking us? What will that technology enable us to do that we couldn't do previously? And then you get, um, you know, uh, tech. Technology patterns that happen in other spaces of our life that become design patterns for banking. So, for example, I can text you a photo or a movie from the other side of the planet, and you'll get it instantly via SMS. Why can't I? Why does it take three days to send money? You know, as an example. Um, so that's one area, application of the technology um, to make the, the system more efficient and just work simply better instead of using 1960s or 1970s uh, you know, computers and, and um, you know, uh, telegraph lines, you know, sort of thing. But the other aspect that I look at is, uh, and it's very apparent in the um, user experience space, particularly with the app world um, you know, it, 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 we've seen that development, but in the next sphere of this with the application of artificial intelligence, smart speakers, smart assistants, and so forth, it's removing the friction. Um, so what do banks provide for us? This is how I broke it down in Bank 4.0. I said, if you look at a bank and what a bank gives a customer, it's three basic core pieces of utility. The ability to safely store money, the ability to safely move money and the ability to access credit when you can't afford something, right? That's the three core pieces of utility the bank provides. What the banks have done is they've created products that they can distribute through the branch that provide that utility. But what's happening now is people are stripping away the friction of the branch product layer and figuring out how do we just deliver that core utility to a person when and where they need it. 
And so that's um, really sort of sitting back and sort of abstracting what it is that banks do and is there a way for banks to do that more efficiently? And then you apply the regulatory constraints, you apply technology, you apply, you know, um, customer experience development capabilities, the app, the capabilities of app stores and smart speakers, and you just track that on a trajectory in terms of where it's, where it's likely to go. So do you do that uh, visually at all? Do you, or any other ways in where you sort of lay this out to try to build, build out what that structure is? Yeah, so one example where I did do it visually, which is in um, Bank 2.0, my first book in the space, which was released in 2010, I tracked out the uptake of mobile phones and the use of mobile phone technology for payments to extrapolate where I thought mobile phones would be used more for direct payments or discretionary payments than plastic cards. So I predicted 2016 that mobile wallets would overtake plastic cards as a payment vehicle. Now I was wrong. I was out by a year, right? Um, but it was Alipay and Tencent. Right. <laughs> yeah, Alipay and Tencent, WeChat Pay was sort of really the core, um, you know, movements behind that. Now we didn't necessarily see that coming. We thought it might be NFC chips, right? Because the NFC would turn your phone into a credit card. And so back in 2010, we thought that NFC might be the vehicle. And it turned out to be QR codes and and uh, and other stuff. But the the um, network effect of having mobile phones was too good of a use case for payments that, you know, you couldn't see mobile phones uh, disrupting. But of course, um, you know, even if you, so that's something you could actually tr track on a trajectory basis. Where it's a bit trickier is on the regulatory side is when will regulations adapt to the new reality? And um, market by market, that's very different. So, for example, China was very open to um, competition against the banks in those early stages. And that's why you have these massive um, tech fins in China that exploded. Um, you know, so Ant, Ant Group at its, uh, its height before it's aborted IPO was uh, worth um, about $330 billion in terms of market cap valuation, which would have made it the fourth largest financial services organization in the world if they had, had listed at that point. Um, and so, you know, but in the US, there's there's no not even um, infrastructure or architecture reg from a regulatory perspective for fintech businesses. There's no fintech charter. Now, the EU has fintech charters, the UK, Australia, um, you know, um, Malaysia, um, you know, all of these different jurisdictions, Singapore, um, you know, and so forth, have, have got that infrastructure. But why hasn't the US allowed fintech charters? Well, that's more complicated, but it comes down to the fact they've got a lot of legacy legal infrastructure like the Community Reinvestment Act, which is the determination that was made in 1970s about how financial inclusion should be executed in the US through bank branches. And so if you now introduce a fintech charter in the US, you now have something that is, is illegal from the, the CRA Act. And so you need to reform that law to be able to enable it. So every market's a little bit different and a little bit harder to predict, but on a macro basis, when you zoom out and you look over the space or 10 or 20 years, you still have obviously that momentum. 
So I'd like to come back a little bit to some of those, the, the analyzing the macro, but, you know, what you've just uncovered, sort of this wealth of understanding of knowledge about what's actually happening, not just in one jurisdiction, right. but in many countries around the world. So pull pull back and tell me, how did you learn all this? What yeah. was So this is probably, you know, podcast interviews, sure. I mean, but how much yeah. reading do you do? What so what is this this and, and is this all in your head? Do you do you have any kind of note taking systems? You know what what is this process by which you've accumulated this wealth of knowledge? Well, I used to write a blog every week, um, you know, and before I did the radio show, I used to write a blog every week, and I'd write about the space. And I would, you know, often I would have to, um, you know, for doing like a thousand words on a blog, I would have to spend three or four or five hours researching the topic. Um, you know, if if um, any of the people listening to this um, this interview have read my books in the past, you'll see that I do a ton of research um, associated with these elements because that helps me sort of sound down the ideas, um, you know, get and, and sometimes that research will take me off in a different direction. I might have a thesis in my head and, and you know, the, the research uh, challenges that thesis and I've got to, got to rethink it. But that process of research, uh, synthesizing that information and coming up with a, uh, a concept uh, around that is, is, is sort of key. Um, but the other thing was, as you said, interviewing um, different people, watching that stream of consciousness as, the, as this fintech movement started with all these different players. Um, and there were networking events and conferences and stuff that I would go to that were sort of have now historically become sort of nexus for a lot of this stuff like um, uh, SWIFT is the international payments organization run an annual conference called Cybos and at Cybos back in the early days there was a group called Inner Tribe right so the innovation tribe and you know I, I would go to these events annually and meet like these new startup founders like you know that's where I met Vitalik Buterin who's behind uh, Ethereum it's where I met uh, you know the the guys that founded Wise it's where I met uh, the guys that you know founded many of these uh, the startups over the years you know the blockchain um, you know and, and and Bitcoin guys and so forth so it, it's a combination of things in terms of note keeping or record keeping. I don't really sort of keep a catalog of these ideas, but I do find that when I write about stuff, I tend to remember it. So if it's something important, I'll write a blog post or something like that. And that's part of the process of me uh, remembering that information. Um, but you know, the other advantage I've got is now I've been in this space for 10 years plus, And so I've seen that evolution. So I, I, can talk about why things have evolved in that way because I've been watching it each step of the way. And there's a, a, there, there is a potential inference that you can get from that in terms of where you're going to go from here. Um, and so you go looking again for data to support that thesis, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I think, you know, blog writing or book writing, it, it forces you to do your research. You, know, you have to go dig. Yeah. And so you mentioned this idea of having a thesis. So having a thesis is uh, something which forces you to do the research to say, okay, I want to support this, and then maybe you find that it hasn't there. And I suppose part of the point there is that you want a thesis which you're not too wedded to, right. but something which is then, some, I suppose, provides you a starting point to to find the information which gives you, you know, suggests what, what is happening. 
So I think this won't be a surprise to you, but you know, if you look at my basic thesis, I'm a techno optimist. Right? Yeah. I think technology can solve a lot of the problems that the world faces. And so there's often that lens that I put to it. What is the technology we've got that can solve homelessness? What is the technology that can make, you know, high quality healthcare accessible to all? Now I'll go looking, um, you know, for things to support that thesis because I believe that's the world we should be creating, right? Now often it doesn't necessarily work like that, um, you know, because there's other other forces or mechanisms, but, um, you know, that tends to be sort of at the core of, of uh, what I'm doing. Um, but the other, the other element of this is also helping people navigate through these changes. That's another core thing. It's like, all right, well, most people don't think exponentially. You know, they can barely think linearly when it comes to something that's going to happen in 10 or 20 years' time. Oh, it's too abstract. It's too far away for me to worry about. Um, but, you know, the, the, the problem with that um, very immediate short-term thinking that humans have, you know, the, the next quarter, the next annual results, the next four-year election term, whatever it may be, that's about the extent of where we do our forward planning. And, we, and as a result, there's a lot of chaos that develops with that because we don't plan for, um, you know, how to get ourselves through these periods of disruption. So when I um, talk about disruption and how it's going to affect your business and what you should do, I'm trying to help people um, you know, just absorb the reality of how this is going to change their world and get them used to that so that, they, so that they're more adaptable when these changes, uh, you know, sort of come, come down the pike. So there's, a, there's a obviously some strong purpose in, in what you're doing. And I, I suppose just like to he hear a little bit about that. How, how did you become a techno-optimist and how have you framed your purpose and, and what it is your, your work and what you're doing and how you're communicating? Uh, it's, a it's a complicated question. Um, part of it comes um, to my upbringing um, and sort of my, uh, you know, I, I was raised as uh, Jehovah's Witness. Um, I, I'm not as active in that religion as I, I once was. Um, but, um, you know, they they have a belief of a, a future, not an afterlife per se, because they believe the, the, the earth is going to be you know, converted into sort of a, a, a paradise. Um, but that optimism that, you know, the, the earth could be, we could live in harmony with the planet and live in harmony with animals and all of that. Conceptually, that was a very nice, uh, um, you know, ideal to have. But, you know, we seem to be getting further and further away from that with climate change and pollution and things like that. So obviously then I'm looking for what, what's, what's the ideal or what's the mechanism that could get us to a, a better lifestyle for humanity, you know, and, um, and, and uh, you know, the aspirational element. So part of that is, is you know, what technologies can we apply? But then also um, I read a lot of sci-fi as a kid and watched a lot of sci-fi. Um, and so when I, you know, I looked at sci-fi, a lot of sci-fi was dystopian. You know, you have the, or, 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 you know, the Star Trek universes and stuff like that. But I was like, well, how can we avoid that? How can we avoid the mistakes that might obviously lead us down a dystopian path? What could we do to optimize the chances that humanity has as a species? So very philosophical, like what is the purpose of humanity? What are we here to, to accomplish? What are we here to do? 
And, um, you know, like when you look at Aristotle and the, the great thinkers of the past, you know, they all grappled with this question. But, um, you know, what I don't think it is, is I don't think it's money. I don't think it's capitalism mm. per se, you know. I think, um, you know, that system is largely abstraction. You know, we humans could could easily survive without money if we just set our mind to it. But um, money creates all of this activity around generating returns and profits and all of these other things, which complicates that core mission of what humans could accomplish, in my view. It's not an optimal form of humanity. Now, capitalists will argue that we've had tremendous innovation through um, through the the capitalist movement um and and that's true but at the same time you know it's a mechanism that creates competition against each other you know companies competing against each other nations competing against each other for trade and gdp and so forth whereas you know if if we were competing for humanity then I think we'd make very different decisions, you know, in respect to how we deploy resources, for example, uh, uh, you know. And so um, that that sort of um, that optimism from sci-fi and so forth, it became for me, uh, you know, sort of short-term sci-fi. But what do we do at those inflection points throughout history? How do we respond to these changes, um, you know, and you know, how do we um, create mechanisms that encourage, um, you know, advances that are going to be good good for everybody or, or broader social good? Um, you know, how do we push back against things that create greater inequality, uh, greater disparity, uh, you know, and so forth? Um, and that's sort of been become the mission over the last few years. It's like, you know, again, how do we use technology to make um, the world a better place? But ultimately it's, you know, in in 10,000 years, where's humanity going to end up and what are we going to have accomplished? And, you know, um, if that's the case, if we could get there, then, you know, what are we doing about it today to ensure that humanity has the best uh, chance whatsoever? And, you know, you look at guys like Elon Musk when he talks about mo- becoming a multiplanetary species and all of those sorts of things. Um, you know, I, I think that that's exciting. I think... Um, you know uh, the the potential of being able to live longer lives with longevity treatments. I think that's tremendously exciting. Who you know who I you know at least I think people should have the option, um, the ability to have highly automated societies where we don't have to work as much and we can pursue learning or play or travel or whatever. I think you know is all positive. You know and that's within our grasp, but. We have to make a decision collectively to go after it. Yes, well, if you're talking 10,000 years, then that's a suitably uh, macro frame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's an that's inspiring, inspiring perspective. Thanks, Brett. So, so just to round out, what would be your advice to someone who's looking to keep across an incredibly fast changing space you know for example where mm. what's happening in finance so on what, what what would your advice be as to how they should be aware of what's going on and make sense of it um obviously um you know if you're in a specific discipline find the top 
10 or 20 people in that discipline who are thought leaders who publish or regularly uh, produce content in that space. Um, you know, there's tons of way to access that content now, you know, YouTube, TikTok, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and just, you know, plug into their stream of consciousness because that's how you'll, you'll initially get up to speed. But then the greatest way to, to really... Um, you know, uh, I guess refine your skills in that space is to attempt to you know put yourself in the middle of that conversation yourself. It is refine your message so you can talk about a unique perspective on that play or that specific industry um, that others might have missed. You know, find find value for yourself in 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 that dynamic because once you do that, that creates massive enthusiasm. If you can carve out for yourself, you know, a platform where other people are listening to you and you're changing the minds of other people, that's incredibly power, power empowering. You know, I can, um, and I know you've experienced this as well, Ross, but, um, um, you know, when, when you're in front of an audience, um, you know, and we're doing less of this uh, physically these days, more virtually, but, it, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. But when you're in front of a, a physical audience, at least, let's say, you know, a few hundred people and they come in with preconceptions about their space and you're able to take them through a, a, a thinking process where you change their mind or you give them a realisation or they have an aha moment and, you know, you're able to see the light come on, you know, as, as you're speaking. That's incredibly powerful. And so um, I do think I chase those moments. I do think I chase the, that process of, of um, not um, like informing people is one thing, but getting people to go, wow, I never really thought about it like that. And then that changes the way they think or maybe takes their career in a different trajectory. For me, that that's just like one of the most powerful things uh, in terms of what I can do as a contribution to society. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I suppose in order to get that, you've got to come up with those perspectives, I suppose, yeah, yourself. Exactly. You've got to be well-researched. You've got to be able to defend your position. You have to be able to, um, you know, explain both sides of the argument, you know, all of those things that come. So, you know, but but look look for those opportunities. Look for where you can insert yourself in the conversation and provide value. Thanks, Brett. That's been such a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for your insights. And look forward to speaking You're very to you welcome, all. Ross. Uh, great to work with you as always. And um, hope to uh, see you down in Oz uh, soon. Uh, yeah, I know the lockdowns and everything are pretty pretty crazy right, right now, but hopefully um, things will start to improve. We'll, we'll be moving around more before long. Fingers crossed. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review, and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.